Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Torres, and welcome back to a special Murder on the Space Coast live podcast event episode. What you'll hear on this episode is the March 6th live event that we held at the Surfside Playhouse in Cocoa Beach, which contains interviews with Stanley Briz of the Opioid Abuse Task Force, Private Eye Nick Sandberg with a Brandy Hall update, Jeff Abramowski's daughter Jamie LeBlanc, and Jeff's attorney Laura Seamers. We've had to edit slightly to remove loud, jarring sounds on the audio, like dropped beer bottles and people talking in the sound booth. Thank you for following and listening to Murder on the Space Coast. We will be back with Season 5 in the very near future. Welcome tonight to the live event of our fourth season of Murder on the Space Coast. My name is Mara Bellaby, and I'm the editor of Corda today. I'm also the lucky editor who gets to work with John Torres on this podcast. Murder on the Space Coast is so important to us in Florida today because it really hits at everything we try to accomplish with our journalism. It's storytelling at its best. It's engaging. I know when I listen to it, you feel like John is talking to you personally. It's investigative journalism, and that's our mission. That's why we're in this business, and this gives us an opportunity to explore some very critical subjects such as the possibility of wrongful convictions, and it's innovative. And on top of all that, it's just really addicting to listen to. You know, I know that I um, binge listen to podcasts, and we hear all the time that people binge listen to this as well. And we're approaching almost one million listens for all of our four seasons, which is fantastic. And I do want to, before I turn it over to John, I do want to welcome a special person in the audience, and now I get to see him, but... Uh, he only retired last week. Uh, former executive editor Bob Cavorty is here. And if it weren't for Bob, this would never have happened. Okay. thrilled to introduce and hand it over, so I get to enjoy it too, to the wonderful podcast host and journalist John Torres. Thank you, everybody, and thanks for coming on out tonight. Um, I really appreciate it. And I think Mara just said that I'm going to keep my job for the next few seasons. So that's really good news uh, to hear. So thank you. We give you the Murder on the Space Coast out for free. You know, it's, it's available on every, every podcast platform. We do it as a service. We think it's important local journalism to give away. However, if you want to help us keep doing that, please subscribe. Our digital packages are so cheap, I can't quote the prices, but right now, the price is one cup of coffee a month for our online packages. So if you if, if you like what I do, please go out and subscribe. I appreciate that. So once I hit 45, my eyes began to go. So I need to. Okay. So um, before we start on this case, I just want to let you all know whoever has been listening to all four seasons 
and we have a sliver, just a small dose of good hope, uh, of good news in Gary Bennett's case. And so I'll actually be going up to Tallahassee next week and hope to have an update podcast, article, paper, whatever, all of the, all of the above very soon. So keep your fingers crossed for Gary. Now, as you saw a little bit in that video, um, hey Matt, could you raise the, uh, the screen? Thanks, Matt. Um, season four is obviously about a murder, but the story is really about opioid abuse. And, um, you know, I live in Indy Atlantic, and about 10 years or so ago, I thought that there was an employment agency around the corner from me, because every morning there were about 25 to like 40 people lined up on A1A. And uh, it was a pill mill, you know, doctor, who was just handing out subscriptions. Thing. Prescriptions for um, Oxycontin and Vicodin and all that stuff, and I had no idea that's how naive I was about it. So um, we wanted uh, we wanted to also bring awareness to the opioid crisis uh, with our story. And so with that, I'd like to bring up my first guest is Mr. Stanley Briz. He uh, he wears many hats in town, but tonight he's here as the head of the Rivard County Opioid Abuse Task Force. Please welcome Stanley. We are recording tonight for a podcast episode for anybody who didn't make it. So, uh, you know, welcome, Stanley, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, are, are the pill mills around still? Yes, but um, I will say the Rock County Sheriff has done a great job. Um, the Rock County Sheriff's Office um, has done a great job of cracking down on those. The issue with those is, um, so let's say you know of a pill mill in your community. Um, of course, a bit more subversive than they, than they used to be. When the police respond to that, it doesn't mean that that's automatically going to result in a, in a conviction or in it being shut down. It takes years to try these things. There's cases that have been going on for maybe four or five years. So it, it's not like you can report a doctor and then all of a sudden uh, that's taken care of. Um, they're still free. Now, hopefully, they're smart enough not to continue trying to. Uh, do what they were doing before with distributing opioids, but it's it's not something where justice is swift, but not necessarily on any fault to do with law enforcement. It's just how things go. Is, are people with resources to, of course, provide themselves the evidence? justice moves pretty slowly, as yeah. we all know, right, Virginia? So, um, now I saw a stat today that I shared with you via email that Brevard County is, I think, it's fourth, you know, worst or best in the in the state, your worst, I guess in the state as far as opioid overdose deaths? Is that right? Yes. So the statistics are pretty sober. I think the only areas in front of Brevard County right now, as far as suspected opioid deaths, this is when police um, respond to the scene, is Palm Beach, Pinellas and Millsboro, uh, that, that region there. Um, as well, Orlando's actually behind us. Orange County is, I think, five. So just thinking about that. Uh, I mean, that's kind of shocking because those places have a big city, right? Oh, yeah. It's in areas compared to Brevard County. But Brevard County is still number four um, as of the last quarter reported in 2018. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm in Florida today within your shot of the scanner and almost daily you hear something on the scanner about somebody overdosing on, uh, on opioids. It's, uh, it's pretty scary. Now, um, you have a personal mistake in all this. Could you share, if you don't mind, sharing 
your two personal connections with opioid overdose or abuse? Yes. Um, so, two things. For one, uh, my best friend passed away from an opioid overdose, which was, was mixed with some other things. Um, this is after his divorce, he came to live with me for a while. And I did not know half the things I know now about uh, addiction in general. I thought I did. Like many people, you have that anecdotal knowledge that you kind of know. But, you know. Um, and then, uh, secondly, my younger brother um, went into a pharmacy to pick pills, steal pill pills, um, for another sophisticated criminal that was kind of pulling the strings. Um, and so, on his way out of the pharmacy, he was uh, shot by police twice. He's now paralyzed um, in the waist down and um, serving a 20-year sentence in uh, Florida State Prison. And not a kid that you would think would do something like that. The stories are true. We didn't know as a family. You usually see things on the news and you're like, it's the parents, it's the family. That is not always the case. Um, this was just a very tragic situation. So we're still trying to get him out of prison right now, just having some um, complications from his paralysis. The police were doing their job. They thought he was in danger and did have a weapon with him. Um, they did not use, but um, so that's how that played out. And at the, at the time, was was he also hooked? He was taken. And the thing about he had been away from home for a few weeks, so we didn't know what he was involved in, mm -hmm. what exactly he had taken or not taken. I know for sure he was drinking, like doing marijuana, smoking marijuana. As far as opioids, I don't know, but that is what he wanted to steal. So there's multiple sides of this issue, um, from those that are hooked on it, from using it, from those that are selling it, whether it's doctors or, or people that are considered discreet criminals. I don't know if that's the proper term for that. Yeah. And um, you shared something with me, Stanley, that um, is like so true in Jeff Abramowski's case, um, that it's not a poor drug or a rich drug, a black drug or a white drug, and it can be prescribed normally. Jeff was in a horrible car accident. He broke several ribs off the back of his spine and was in pain, and he was given you know, painkillers. And then after a while, um, he got hooked. Yeah. Is that pretty common? Is that how it happens? Very common. There's a high percentage of people that start off using opioids for legitimate purposes. So for that reason, we're very careful on how we present the message. So we're talking about opioid abuse. There are legitimate uses for opioids as a painkiller. The issue is the lack of regulation, um, people underestimating the capacity of addiction. Um, so we're talking about high school students who may have had a sports injury. We're talking about people's uh, parents, grandparents, who were prescribed this. I was prescribed, and I didn't really end up needing it. But at the time, it wasn't because of any lofty high moral reason. I just didn't think I needed my mother raised me to be afraid um, to take the medication in general. But um, you get, I got a lot of Vicodin just for having uh, a very, very minor dental surgery, dental procedure. And it, it's like, wow, it was, was that easy? And this is before some of the safe part of the place legally got Wow. Um, is there one thing that maybe the average public really doesn't know about opioid abuse addiction that you want to share with us right now, Stephen? I would say that right now stigma is one of the biggest issues that we're trying to work with. So many people uh, classify individuals who are addicted to opioids as lesser human beings, people with some sort of moral failing, and that's just not 
the case. As long as we have that stigma, especially in Brevard County, will continue to rise the number of feet, number two, maybe even number one, and it'll be like that until we realize that we need to be able to give individuals the opportunity to better themselves. Um, I don't know how much harder I can stress that. There's a difference between um, enabling someone and actually giving someone the opportunity to still better themselves. And, and that's up for each individual to decide what that level is. Um, but until we allow people to understand there are options, there's medicated-assisted treatment. Uh, I won't say that is the only way to stop using an opioid. We don't necessarily need medicated-assisted treatment. But we should remove the stigma from people who use that. There's a stigma of saying, well, you're still on something. Okay, every person is different. There's people who have been stigmatized that haven't used medicated-assisted treatment they could have used. Uh, to help them get over the opioid addiction, to stop using it because family members said, oh, you're still on something. Um, and they come right back to just using it because they said, well, nothing I do is, is good enough. And they end up losing that individual. Um, another thing I want to bring out, I'm not taking quite if there's so much to say in so little time, is this does not even necessarily have to be in your family. Let's say you've got a grandson or you have a, a child that's in school they come home with their friend, maybe they do homework or something, maybe that friend has an issue. Maybe that friend is uh, the one that's has a, the, the, the addiction. You could come home to someone's child overdose in your bathroom or at your home. So are you prepared as a person to know how to deal with those issues? Um, we're doing a push in this county where uh, first responders have Narcan. Individuals out here can also have that. And what, that, what Narcan does, is if someone is in the middle of an overdose from opioids, it allows them to have a second chance to be able to administer that just at the right time. It knocks the opioids off the receptors and gives that person a chance to be resuscitated completely. Well, that's great information. And um, he has a booth um, out in the lobby now. Um, as you walk out, it's right there to your right hand side with some literature and a person here to answer questions. So um, at the intermission, if you want to go out or uh, afterwards, Overstight, grab something. If you have any questions, please ask either Stanley or uh, Jennifer's out there. Or Jennifer. uh, so please do. Yeah, we, we started up the counties for our opioid task force, which I'm proud to say that most law enforcement and our medical um, entities are also a part of. School districts are part of it as well. So there is good movement happening in this county with the issue. Thank you. Great. And um, whoever bought a uh, actual ticket here tonight, some of the proceeds are going to the Brevard County opioid abuse task force because like I said we wanted to also give back a little bit so I mean our costs were the um, the actual rental of the theater and the food and stuff and so whatever's left over we'll give uh, to them so we want to thank you for coming out Stanley thank you so much well I, I mean you know it's crazy I have um, a disc problem and you know once every two years my you know I will have an issue with it my back and it's almost impossible to get like painkillers now from my, my doctor, you know, I mean, when I actually need them. So, uh, but I do understand it and I appreciate it. Um, now, before we get into season four again, so we have a little bit of an update on season three, where is Brandy Hall? So a show of hands if anybody has heard that podcast or listened to it. Excellent. Okay. So we know that Brandy Hall was a 32-year-old firefighter. Um, Stan, it feels weird to say. Um, I put these lights on me, I like singing, but, um, <laughs> um, who went missing August 17th of 2006, uh, has not been seen since. Now, um, I'm going to welcome to the stage a private investigator by the name of Nick Sandberg. Come on up, Nick. Hi, 
worked for some of these agencies, so I heard them all talk about it. And I just, like every other person that's in the audience that listens to these podcasts, they want to be involved, they want to give their insights, stuff like that. I had the means to do so, so and, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to help and give those means any way that I could. And so Nick has gone out and he has just restarted the investigation as if it was from scratch, as if it happened yesterday. And one of the first things he did was he went and he spoke to the Malabar fire men and women who were working the night that that Randy disappeared. Is that right? Yes, it's right. And were you surprised by what a few of them had to say to you? I was very shocked. Some of them said they'd never been interviewed by law enforcement. Um, now, you know, I mean, look, I watch a lot of crime shows on TV, and you always talk to the person who last was with the person who went missing, right? Or who's dead. They actually have physical video of these people with her. So some of them say that they'd never talk to law enforcement. And so what do you put, I mean, as, as an ex-cop, as a, as a like, prop guy, what do you think when you hear that? Dumbfounded. Um, very much shocked. Um, you know, even the individual that originally, uh, there was a misconception of who found her truck um, originally. Uh, her gear was found first off um, by the man from the college. He took it up to one of the fire stations right there off of San Filippo. That fire department seen the Malabar logo on the outside of the bag and called the Malabar station. The assistant chief at the time showed up, said, where'd you find this? So they told him the late, he went down there and he was the one that originally found the roof of the truck. He was not interviewed till about six months ago. Wow. And the situation on that is, it just so happened, he happened to be at his mother's house and a detective had lived across the street from his mother's house moved in. And he said, hey, whatever happened? You know, I'm the one that found her truck. And the tech detective, he said, was dumped on it just as much as he was that he'd never been talked to. Wow, that's really um, head-scratching. Now, um, I don't want to slam the Palm Bay police too much because uh, we don't really know everything that has, that has happened in this case. And um, because uh, it's an open investigation now, we're in talks to maybe try and challenge that a little bit to, because we haven't gotten a lot of the information from them or the documents or the videos because it's an ongoing investigation. But I think that there's a Florida statute, I don't think I actually know because I checked with our attorney, but um, that it has to be an ongoing active investigation and progress has to be you know, made in it. So uh, it's been 12 or like 13 years now and um, I, you know, I think it's time for them to release some of those records. Have you had any luck with them in trying to get records from them or any cooperation at all? Uh, I've been absolutely told that I will not get any information. That if I have anything that I need to turn over to them to feel free, but they will not be sharing information whatsoever. Any reason? Just because it's it's ongoing active? Or? That's the only thing that I get from statement from the detectives in the lead. Um, is that it's ongoing investigation. We don't share information with outside sources. Wow. Now, um, you know, word of your uh, involvement in this case has has been publicized a bit, and so you started to get some tips and calls. Now, I know you can't divulge all of that. Sorry, folks, I know it, but you can't know it yet. Um, uh, what can you share about some of those tips, and, and are they credible, and have they led to anything interesting for you? Basically, if you think of this whole case as a game board, I don't know the end result of the winner yet, but now I can see the board um, and the trail that has to follow for all the game pieces. A lot of those pieces have fell into place. Um, 
I do know for a fact that Brandy was aware of the grow operation. She was not actively participant, but she was aware. And for those who don't know, um, Brandy's husband, Jeff Ball, who was in uh, a like retired Osceola fire captain, was arrested for a marijuana grow operation on his on his property. I have uncovered some names of people that she was highly afraid of um, in relation to this grow operation. Um, it was actually a pretty decent size operation. And I think it was all played down by law enforcement that it was not. And I'm just gonna jump in for one second because we have um, our clippings and stuff and from the um, the actual arrest and the sentencing, the, um, Osceola, the Osceola County Sheriff's deputy who's in charge of this arrest or agent actually said in court that it's the biggest operation he had seen in 10 years. Um, the, the generator was eight feet tall, I believe, or something like that, you know, seven feet tall. Um, you know, massive amounts of, of, you know, dry marijuana, growing marijuana, all that stuff. And yet, like, over time, when you ask people about it, uh, especially from Palm Bay, they seem to really downplay it as a Mickey Mouse operation, but we know it wasn't. It was a pretty big operation for this, you know, one agent to say in court it's the biggest he'd seen. They, they had three generators, and they cost $25,000 a piece, just to let you know um, kind of the size of the grow operation that they had going on. So it's not like, you know, like a little kid in his dad's garage, no growing plan, no, it's like this is, this is major. So, um, and I think at the time it was quoted as a million dollar a year operation. Wow. Um, so maybe the drugs, um, the drug angle, you know, maybe does have something to do with her disappearance. We don't really know. Uh, we know, we, we do know that her husband, Jeff, was gonna be sentenced the, the like day after she uh, she vanished, and um, she was expected to speak on his behalf. <clears throat> and um, wow, so maybe other people were involved. Is that a thought, maybe, or in the operation? It's 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 a theory that's very possible, and some of it's being cooperated. Uh, now, um, I have to say that I'm like ninety percent you know done with a Brandy Hall update you know, podcast episode that you guys just kind of heard first here. Um, but so that'll be coming out um, in the next week or two. So be on the lookout for that. I you know just if you hit subscribe to the podcast or on Facebook, it will come up every time there's a new episode. So um, is there anything else you want to add, Nick? I think I'm going to keep my mouth shut or else people are going to be mad. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Well, thank you for coming out, buddy. I appreciate it. I'm just checking my time. Okay, yeah. Perfect, actually. Okay, so um, Jeff Abramowski, right? Season four. So I had written about this case. In fact, um, I found some articles where I was either, uh, I, I either wrote a preview to the second trial or I wrote something about the sentencing, you know, maybe from uh, a press release that I got from the, uh, you know, like the attorney's office or something like that. But um, it wasn't until a few years later when I was contacted by uh, his former attorney who wanted to chat with me about Jeff and um, where I became interested in his case again. And as a matter of fact, I don't think it's online anymore, but with, with a, a like big Sunday story that I wrote in 2016, we decided to, to try a podcast. And so I think there's a, about a 10-minute episode in cyberspace you know, somewhere pulled over on the Space Coast and it's like mainly about 
Jeff and his attorney, um, Shannon. And so I'm just going to walk you through real quick what happens with these, with these podcasts. Um, Mara and I have a list of like five or six names at all times or topics or things that we want to explore. And, you know, we could tell crazy, salacious stories. I mean, we have the vampire rapist, for crying out loud, in Brevard County, right? I mean, I mean, we could do that and we could sell a lot of papers and sell a lot of podcast clips and stuff, but we want to choose topics that you know, maybe we can help affect change, where we can help you know, do something like Brandy Hall. You know, maybe, you know, having Nick happy you know, hear the podcast inspired him to get involved and maybe he'll solve this thing, you know, after all. With like Gary Bennett, um, attorney Francis Clifford heard the podcast and is, has been working for the last, what, like two, two or like three years more on, on, on his behalf and when something is happening in, in, in that case. And so we wanted to tell Jeff's story and, but man, I did not know half of the stuff that I ended up uncovering. And it's just one of those stories that we were saying right from the start, it felt like a Quentin Tarantino movie because you can't make up characters like this. You can't make up Judy, Bruce, and Rita. You can't make up these stories. You, you know, um, uh, a homicide agent who takes the witness stand and he doesn't tell the truth. And you know, people that take the witness stand and just you know, flat out lie and, um, and, and, and evidence. And the thing that really struck me about this case was that I listened to Jeff's two interrogation videos. I think one was two hours long, one was like about an hour and a half long. And what he really sounded like you would sound if you were innocent, you know. I mean, I mean, not that I not that, that I have a sixth sense or anything like that, but I mean, he just sounded like one of those guys that you think like he's he's it, he is telling the truth and behaving like it. And um, even recently, when we uncovered some audio about the uh, the uh, accusation sentencing, um, when uh, the the daughter and granddaughter of the victim in this case spoke. And then Jeff spoke afterwards. He just sounded so sincere and so, um, you know, Mara, at, at that point, she was like, boy, I really do believe he's, that he's innocent now after hearing him, you know, say that and, and, and talk. And so, um, have you all listened to it? Has everybody listened to the podcast, hopefully? Or know the story? Okay, uh, who doesn't know the story? Do I need to recap a little bit? Okay, so, so Courtney Dick Crandall was a 78-year-old Oxycontin dealer. And Jeff Abramowski was a drug addict. And um, so they were buddies, and Crandall would drive Jeff around to these pill mills that you heard Stanley Briggs you know, talk about earlier, and he would pay him money to go in to get prescriptions, and then he would pay for those pills, and he would pay Jeff back in either cash or pills. And, um, and he would keep him hooked that way, you know, also. And, um, you know, Jeff had a uh, beautiful wife, a beautiful daughter and son, and he lost all of that, and he was living with a friend, um, on the weekend that Courtney Crandall was murdered. And he was found clutching the hair of his girlfriend, okay? Her boyfriend's adult son's blood is in the bathroom sink, and yet Jeff Amorowski is the one serving life in prison. So we're going to take a very short 10-minute break to use the restroom, grab a wine or a beer, and then we're going to bring up Jeff's daughter, attorney. Okay? Thanks. We had a very slight audio problem to begin the second half of the show, but here I am with Jamie LeBlanc, Jeff's daughter, 
asking her what kind of dad Jeff was. My dad did everything. We, he taught kids how to swim. He played baseball with us. Played tag, hide and seek. Anything that we wanted to do outside, he was there with us. And if the neighbor kids were there too, it was just a plus for him because he just loved kids. He didn't have much of a childhood. So he his childhood was being with us. Yeah, if you haven't heard the podcast yet, um, Jeff talks about his childhood growing up uh, uh, in, in like Wisconsin, I think it is. Yes, Wisconsin. And um, his dad was a single dad, you know, raising him, you know, basically, you know, gruff sort of truck driver type. Um, I'm sure he loved Jeff and loved Jeff, but maybe he, he didn't show it a lot. And when he was 18, he was either told, uh, he, he was told to either go live in Hotel Buick or uh, join the service. And so your dad joined the Coast Guard. Yes. And we've had those great photos provided by you. He looked very proud and handsome in his, in, in his uniform. And uh, he did that for about six years. And he told me that um, he was working on boats and like fixing boats in the in the like Coast Guard. You see a ship, I guess they call them. And uh, one of his buddies in the Coast Guard said, you should move to Brevard County, which is what he did. He met your mom. Not at the West Spot. No, not at the West Spot. <laughs> Funny story, if you haven't read the podcast, I asked Jamie, where did your parents be? And she goes, I think it was at the wet spot. I'm like, look at that car. It's like, whoa. I mean, no offense if anybody here likes that. I mean, I'm sure it's fine. So I, I asked her mom, and her mom almost died laughing. I mean, what? And then I, I, I actually asked Jeff that in prison, and he started cracking up. No, it was at a place called Spanky's on Merrill Island. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it sounds better than the wet spot. I mean, come on. Right? I mean, I'm not going to go there. That's, come on. So, um, so they met, obviously, and fell in love, had you and your brother, and things, you know, I don't want to say that they were perfect, every, every relationship has its ups and downs, right, honey? Uh, my wife is awesome, she's amazing, she's in the back there watching, she always comes out these things for me. Um, but everything changed one fateful morning. I mean, like this whole podcast really hinges on what happens this one morning. Can you tell us what happened? And just talk to the mic if you don't mind. Yes, it was totally life-changing. Everything changed from that point on. We were driving to school, we were running late. Like you said, I was probably doing my hair or something as a little girl. You were what, in like seventh grade or sixth grade? I was in like fourth grade. Fourth grade, okay. Yeah, I think I was in fourth grade, and so we were heading out uh, west on Palm Bay Road talking and just, you know, our way to school when a car, a big truck, a two-door, I think it was, um, I don't know, just a two-door little car, uh, this big truck came across the median and smashed into my dad's side of the door. And we flew into the ditch right before Chili's there on Palm Bay Road. It just went so fast, you know, we came out and... And your brother's dad, face was all bloody. My dad, my brother cut his face from the cheek in. And he needed like 60 stitches to put it back together. I hit the dashboard. And you were really hurt at this point? Yeah, my thumbs and everything lifted straight up. And my dad somehow made it out of the car and pulled both of us out. Not knowing how badly he was hurt, but he still pulled both of us out of the car. And there was a back seat door, so he had to pull my brother out behind the seats and everything. Um, and people came rushing over to help us. Uh, and my dad, I remember my dad screaming, don't touch me, don't touch me, get my kids. It's okay. 
And so um, I, I asked him about that, and he said, well, that's what any, any dad would do. Right? Any, any decent father would, uh, would not ever go into an ambulance without his kids going in before him. I knew I was going to need these. <laughs> they did tell him, no, you need to go first. You're more severely hurt than they are. And, and he had to major injuries. He had, his ribs were actually broken off of the spinal. Uh, you know, um, yeah, yeah, still floating there. Yeah, okay. that just even sounds painful to even talk about it. And um, he wouldn't spend the night in the hospital. He wouldn't spend the night in the hospital, which you know, maybe is also a turning point in the story. Maybe if he had stayed, he was given some like painkillers. And, and you know, anybody that has ever taken a hydrocodone for a tooth or for a like, back or whatever, um, you feel fine and you start to, to act, like, act like as if you're actually okay. And you can do stuff again. And you end up injuring yourself more, and so you need more of those pills, and so it's this horrible cycle. Horrible, yes. And they put him on bed rest, so he couldn't really. He laid on the couch. He gained a lot of weight, and he couldn't do anything anymore. He laid there for months, just taking the pain medicine, so that if he could move, that would help him. And it was just like I said, a total life changing from that point on. Everything. My dad never drank. My dad didn't smoke cigarettes. My dad didn't do anything. And then the post started. And it got so bad, Jamie, that you told me that you'd be embarrassed to actually bring friends home from school because he might be passed out on the floor or he might have his face in a bowl of spaghetti or something. Passed out in the bathroom, passed out in front of the air conditioning vent. Maybe he hit stuff there. Yeah, it was Obviously, you and your mom and your brother tried to get him, you know, off and, and you know, off the pills. <clears throat> and your mom actually wrote a note, and she had it, you know, like Xerox or a photocopy or whatever, you know. And um, she would she would bring it to pharmacies and these pill doctors that, that which actually said, "My husband is a drug addict. Do not give him these pills." And what did they say? He's paying us cash. We're going to give him to whatever he wants. He has cash, so too bad. And it reached a point where you and your mom and your brother, you had had enough. And um, you basically wanted to either teach him a lesson or to hit rock bottom so that he would clean himself up because you can't clean up an addict. They have to clean himself up, right? And so um, he left the home. Uh, you know, he would miss us and he would want to come back and I think he always did. It's just by that point he just he couldn't stop. He was too addicted. Yeah. And he tried methadone. He went to the methadone clinics, but that's almost even more addicting probably than the pain pills at the time because people he died as well. Right, yeah. And, and so um, he just went between the two of them. He tried, but it would always go back to taking off. And so you hadn't heard from him, you know, for a while. Yeah. And somebody called your house and asked for your mom and said, "Yeah, we saw something in the newspaper." What? Your dad was in the hospital. Yeah. And they said, "Well, you know, he's in the hospital. 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 He's in
dad's on the front page of the newspaper, or your husband's on the front page of the newspaper, and she's like, what? For what? And she's like, he killed somebody. So, here's what I also did not tell you about the murder, if you have not listened to the podcast. They claim that Jeff was a drug-crazed guy who went to, you know, who went to go see his dealer friend for drugs. Well, uh, the body was found with 92 Oxycontins uh, on it, and I think like $170 in cash or something like that on it. So, you know, if you're a junkie and you're that you know, like strung out that you're going to go and hurt somebody for, would you at least, you know, take the pills? Um, and, you know, from everybody that I interviewed, it sounded like um, Jeff was the kind of guy that when he was on pills or whatever, was really more just, you know, mellow. He was passed out most of the time, yeah, or just kind of zoned out. There's no way he would have been able to eat, let alone put a pack and so, were you able to go and see your dad in jail when he was waiting for trial? Or? Yeah, my mom took us once, I believe, um, but that's when you heard the podcast. My brother kind of lost it. And so this whole time he thinks that he's just going to be proven innocent or not guilty. He said, you know, don't worry about it. I'm coming home. There's no way I didn't do this. You know, they're not going to find me guilty of this because I didn't do it. We had our complete faith in the justice system, so. And um, so for this, his first trial ended in a, in a mistrial. Um, the state was going to use a jailhouse, you know, snitch by the name of Robert O'Hala, who um, refused to testify when he went to court. And he said, I'm not going to give any false testimony in this case. He said that Agent Gary Harrell told him what to say. And um, I spoke with Ohala for the podcast. He's in prison, and he wanted to come clean and, and, and clear all this up. And he claims that Gary Harrell um, you know, told him all about the crime, all about um, what had happened, and we didn't want him uh, to be his like star witness. And he wouldn't. So a like mistrial was declared um, without you know giving away exactly what happens next. Jeff gets a private attorney for the second trial, and he's happy, and he thinks this is all going to go away. Because the, the, the evidence they have on Jeff Abramowski is a trace of DNA under the victim's fingernail, one nail, that can't exclude him. It's not a match for him, but it can't exclude him. It's he, uh, I think the reports that he matched on two or three loci the DNA expert that I spoke to said we can match on four or five loci, and it's not really that uncommon. So, um, however, one of those two or three loci was kind of a weird marker, right, that Jeff also has. But what I found out for this podcast is that, um, you know, which maybe, you know, was unknown in like 2002, or I'm not sure, but we hear DNA and we think, okay, he's got to be guilty, there's DNA there, right? Well, my DNA is on that microphone that I handed Jamie, and so now she has my DNA on her hands, 
she's going to go touch her steering wheel in her car, and my DNA will be on her car steering wheel. And, you know, and so I can get convicted for a crime because my DNA is on her car steering wheel. That's actually how touch DNA works, uh, which, is, um, which is, you know, like really incredible. I mean, if it's not blood or semen or a scratch or, you know, like something that's really, you know, tangible, um, it, it's, it, it's, 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 it's really a reach, I think, at times uh, to say that there's DNA evidence in this case. And so, but here's the thing. And I love, I love Mark Moses on sports radio. I don't know if you guys ever listen to Mark. He's a part of mine. He always says, here's the thing. And I love saying that, so I'm going to start using that in the podcast now a while. So, so here's the thing. FDLE, you know, they actually run this test. The amount of DNA is so small that when they ran it a second time, it wasn't there. So they were supposed to confirm it, so they put a handwritten question mark next to the DNA results. And that is what convicted Jeff Akramowski. Is the jury hears DNA, the prosecutor keeps on slamming on DNA, his DNA is under his fingernails. Oh no, two out of 13 loci were there on one test that could have even had been cross-contamination, really. I mean, we don't know. We don't know. But, um, so you're at the second trial, and Jeff is so uh, sure that he's going home, he tells you to bring snacks, because he's in the jail for like four years waiting for trial. What, what kind of snacks? What, 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 what do you like to eat? Those little Debbie And um, I, I, you know, I hate to have you relive that moment, but what was it like when the like, jury you know, said guilty? Like, um, I, I heard a person yell on the tape. Was that you that yelled? Or? podcast and the police interviews, it's mind-boggling 
when did you leave? One person says Friday night at nine. One person says Saturday morning at like two in the morning. One person says um, Sunday morning at two in the morning. And then now, like these people are being asked this two days later, okay? So they can't you know, come together on, uh, on a story. Where did you stay? And how long did it take? It took three days to get to Alabama to their hometown that they've been back and forth to you many times. That's a 10 hour trip. It's 10 hours, it took, it took them three days. Well, what's the proof? Well, they had a receipt from a Jacksonville rest stop, and they had a receipt from a candy store or something just over the Georgia uh, line on Saturday with no time on it. And that's it. And then they had a receipt on, on Monday, right? So the, the state is trying to say that Jeff you know, killed him on Saturday. He went there on Saturday, and he killed him. But the jury heard from two witnesses who said, oh yeah, you know, Jeff was, was, at, was at the park Saturday. But they didn't hear the six witnesses that I found audio from, and it's in the podcast, who saw Mr. Crandall alive and well without Jeff all day long Saturday, from breakfast to noon to afternoon to afternoon right here in Cocoa Beach at some antique uh, and a sales and some yard uh, uh, sales. Uh, to a neighbor of his seeing him while she washed her car at uh, about five o'clock that night. So, uh, plus, the medical examiner said that when he examined the body on Tuesday, the body was in full rigor mortis. Now, I did not know this, but rigor mortis is temporary. I thought, and I, I, I thought that you know, after you froze, that was it. You just were like frozen. Uh, it lasts about up, up to forty-eight hours, and it goes flaccid again. So for the body to be in full remorse on Tuesday, there's no way that he could have been killed on Saturday, right? Um, and so these people had a receipt from Jacksonville on Saturday, which if they left on a Friday, that's not really traveling too far. Like they weren't walking, they were actually driving. So, um, but what's really strange is that the police don't really push them on this. They ask Bruce Foley, who's the son who attacked you know, Dick Randall, they ask him, when was the last time you saw Dick? And in the span of about five minutes, he gives them four different answers. And come on, I've seen I've, I've seen cops on TV. You know, I mean, that's when you grab them and say, "Well, you know, like which is it? You know, um, you, I I I have like four answers here. You know, which is the truth? What is that? Nobody says that. They just okay, okay, that sounds good, that sounds good. And they come back and they just immediately focus on um, on Jeff. And so, um, Jeff is a very upbeat guy. When you see him in jail, he's like, I mean, he's, he's hardened and he's, he's unhappy, obviously. I mean, but he's very hopeful all the time. And he files an appeal after appeal after appeal. And he's never lost hope right. in all these years, not once. What is it like when you win, you go see him? Um, he's always happy to see us. My kids love him more than anything as their papa. Um, he was always worried that they wouldn't have a great relationship with him because they don't see him every day, but it's like they never left him when they see him. They run up to him and hug him, and my six-year-old who learned how to read within the last year, he reads him a book every time so that he can read his papa a story. Um, and, but it's always good to see him we eat, you know, my kids love the food in the commissary. They won't eat <laughs> They won't eat anything else, like when we go out to eat or something, but when we're there, they have to eat everything from the commissary. 
Um, so we, you know, spent time together. And so they think that that's his house, oh, right? Oh, yeah, they, they say, Papa's let's house. go to Papa's house. Um, and then when we leave, they always say, can we bring Papa home with us? Is he coming home with us? So they're, you know, they don't get it 100%, but they, they love him more than anything. I mean, they have a, such a close relationship with him. We talk on the phone, and I'm on the phone with him. They know, and they come running into the room or wherever I am. Hi, let me say hi to him. You know, they just want to talk to him and be with him. And I was telling Papa will be home soon. Don't worry, we're gonna, he's going to come home. So they just wait. But it's always good to see him, and he loves seeing us. But then he'll call me afterwards. And that was my best, the best time I've had all week. I love you, and you know, can you come again soon? And so we try to get there as much as we can. My husband goes, and our two kids, so we make like a little trip of it and get to spend time. There. And you know, like luckily, he's pretty close by. Yeah. He's in Martin County. Yeah, so it's about an hour or ten minutes from my house. I think that's our closest, you know, prison. So yeah, he was in the in the. Uh, um, by the support and just that people care, um, because after all these years, it's just me. And so just knowing that everybody supports him and believes in him and they're hearing what he's gone through. I mean, it's, he's amazed by the support that he has, and he's very appreciative of it, and he really feels like this is going to help him to come home. And so what are you hoping happens? What are you hoping that this podcast will do? I'm hoping um, Again, at the end, just to answer some questions. When that happens, we have a microphone right there. That if you could you know, make your way down to that microphone at the end uh, to ask questions. So, my last guest is Jeff's attorney, Laura Seamers. Please come on up, Laura. podcast probably and I wouldn't unless you had come to me um, several years ago and you also every every season of like murder on the space coast you know Laura would always be on Facebook and on Twitter saying what are you going to do Jeff's story what are you going to do Jeff's story and so um, we have that and um, even though it doesn't shine the most flattering light on you um, and for those of you who don't know um Laura went to see Jeff 
at the county jail um, basically about 10 days before he was set for trial. And why don't you tell us what happened? You know, what, what, if you're okay with that. Yeah. If you could just hold the mic. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, in, uh, let's see. Jeff was arrested for this murder in 2002. And he was represented by the public defender's office. Um, the attorney who was assigned to his case um, would later become my husband. And he and I knew each other from 2002 when I started working at the public defender's office also. Um, Jeff's case was pending from 2002 until 2006. And he was being held in the Brevard County Jail with no bond for all that time. And um, over that period of four years, I heard um, from Steve about the case and that he had this yeah. client. And he was your husband, Steve was right? Yeah, well, he wasn't my husband until 2005. But um, starting like 2002, he would tell me periodically about this case that he had and his client said he was innocent and he was charged with murder. Um, but he was always concerned because like you said, it's, they call it a DNA case, you know, whether there is or how much DNA there supposedly is, is uh, a big question mark, but um, it can be very intimidating to try a DNA case, right? Um, people, jurors, love to hear that, and they think, okay, an expert's telling me that the DNA is connected to this person who's sitting here, that the state and the police are telling me is guilty, so that's it, that's all I need to know. And um, I think there's a lot Right? Um, there was so little, it was really like a speck of a speck of something. There was so little DNA under his fingernail. But to get back to the story, so the case was pending for four years, and over that time I heard some different things about the evidence, including that somebody else's hair is in the, the dead guy's hand. And, um, and it's not just like a, a hair laying across, it's like intertwined his fingers, like this was a grab. And at some point, I saw the videotape interrogations um, that that, uh, that that he said done with Jeff. Um, two different tapes that you were talking about earlier. One's about two and a half, two hours, one's over an hour or more. And when you watch it, uh, you know the same way you do. My my feeling about this guy is this: everything he says and the way he says it just comes across to people. Because you read, you watch it, and you really feel like this guy is it. Right. He's right. He's he isn't trying to hide anything. He's just. Yeah, he gives them his hair. They, 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 they ask him for a DNA sample. He says, okay, here. They give him, give him the swabs. Oh, and, you know, um, they tell him that he doesn't have to speak to him, but he does. And so um, during that time, I also knew that uh, Jeff was increasingly unhappy with Steve's representation. Um, he felt that Steve should be doing he felt that his public defender should have been doing different things in the case that weren't being done. And um, so uh, the case went to trial in December of 2005, but then there was a mistrial um, under what I believe are quite dubious circumstances. Um, the public defender was not intending to ask for a mistrial until the judge suggested that he did it. Right, right. Which is kind of shady. And he never would it never would have occurred to him to even ask for a mistrial. 
Um, uh, another thing that actually is interesting to me, but I'm thinking back chronologically, you never met, I don't know, did you mention this in the podcast? Maybe you did. We found out later on, years later, that after that, right, it was an orchestrated mistrial in December of 2005, the judge and the prosecutor went back to the jury room and talked to the jurors. It's in the podcast, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because he denies it. Now I remember it, yeah. And so, and he says, no, 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 yeah. So the prosecutor and the judge went back to the jury room and approached them and asked them, how are you going to vote? And the, the majority of them, the vast majority of them were going to vote not guilty before they had deliberated at all. And the prosecutor asked them, what do you think were the strengths and weaknesses in my case, and what should I do differently? When he's asked by John about that in the podcast, he denies it. And says right. that's improper, and I never would have done that. Right, because attorneys can only um, only talk to jurors if the jurors approach them and say, "Hey, I was on the jury, and I want to say hey about you." Know. And the public defender who represented him just never, never knew that. Never knew that that happened. He was never told. He was never given the opportunity to be back there with them. They secretly went and spoke to the jury improperly. We have a juror from that case, from that trial, <laughs> signed an affidavit, a sworn affidavit, saying that. That's how we know it's true. Um, when I took over the case in June of 2006, um, this, this juror from the first trial emailed me and he said, hey, I saw that this case is going to trial again. I, I was shocked because I thought this guy was innocent and I can't believe this is going back to trial again after the mistrial. And um, so what happened was, in June of 2006, right before the case was scheduled to go to trial again, um, actually, I believe it was about 10 days before the case was set to go to trial, I drove up to the Brevard County Jail where Jeff had been held, and I convinced him to let me take over the case from the public defender. And I knew that he was unhappy with the representation that he had, and I knew that like most innocent people, it was really important to him to have somebody who really believed in him. Which I did, and I told him. And I knew that he was upset about the fact. It wasn't that Steve didn't believe him or didn't, he just didn't, you know. Steve wasn't happy with him. Yeah, yeah. But, but as far as Steve was concerned, or the public defender, and probably most attorneys you might talk to, they'll tell you that they don't care whether the client's innocent or not. It's not relevant, and that's not, you know. But to an innocent person who's charged with murder, that's very important, right? <laughs> And so I knew that, and I knew um, that he was unhappy with, with the representation he was getting, and I don't know how long I spoke to him, but it wasn't all that long. I mean, it might have been an hour. I talked to him, I talked to him until letting me take over the case. And now, he, he didn't ask you, and you didn't offer, but you had not done a murder trial before. Correct. And you had not done a DNA trial before. Correct. And you had only done, I think, two felony you know, cases before this. Tried. What, at that time, what was going through your mind? What made you think you could take on this case so close to trial and win? Um, <laughs> at the time, I, um, I honestly was under the delusional belief that I was a genius and that I was going to win this, like, basically one half my brain time behind my back. That this was such a, an easily won case and I, um, I, was, I was suffering from manic delusion at the time. 
I had been diagnosed with bipolar um, disorder and, and uh, many years before. But like many people, I wasn't taking my medication as I was supposed to and prescribed. So I was not thinking clearly at all. Um, after I drove back from the jail, I, I called Steve, I remember, and I told him what I had done, and he said, you can't do that, don't do that, I wouldn't listen, you know, um, he tried to talk me out of it, but I just wouldn't listen, and um, then the case, the case was set for, I believe, the 19th, June 19th, 2006. And so we've spoken, obviously, um, a lot about this you know, case. You were ill, you were not taking your meds, you know, uh, as prescribed. And when you look back at that trial now, which I know you have, and it wasn't easy for you, do you see, oh my gosh, you know, what was I doing there? You know, what was going on? What was your reaction to yourself as you watch? Yeah, it was really hard. It was really difficult. Um, <sighs> I actually didn't watch the videos of the trial for 10 years after. It was so difficult for me to watch it. It was like post-traumatic stress, just just listening to the judge. Um, but I know we don't have a ton of time probably left, so I'll, I just want to, to say, well, what I think, you know, what might be the most important things I can add, if possible. Well, I mean, if you go ahead and you, you you came forward to me a few years ago, and you told me this. Right. And you, and because you were, you were actually filing an appeal. Um, you had, you know, Brian Olnick, you had, you, had, you, had, you had hired an attorney to write an appeal that was based on what's called ineffective assistance of counsel because you were mentally ill. Well, and, yeah, and, yeah. Me, yeah, so let me try to tell yeah. this part of the story. This is where I sort of... <laughs> so, so the trial, in my opinion, was a circus to a large extent, largely because of the interaction between me and the judge. And the judge, I think she was very unhappy about me taking over the case, to be honest, from the get-go, so she was not happy with me in general. But then, I believe my behavior was, was somewhat erratic, and she was very, very frustrated with me, uh, to put it mildly and was constantly reprimanding me, telling me I was saying things I shouldn't say, doing things I shouldn't do. Um, but even when she did, I kept doing certain things anyway. I didn't care, you know? And honestly, I think it was that kind of thing that that probably made the worst impression on the jury. Right. Um, so the, the trial was five days long. The jury deliberated, like Jamie said, for two hours, one of which was lunch and found him guilty. Um, here's an interesting little aside that wasn't on the podcast, I don't think, right? After the trial, I was outside crying, and the jury was being led to the, um, to the, to their cars by a, by a deputy, a bailiff, what we call the deputy, the courtroom deputy. And I went to try to say something to them, you know? I can't even remember the exact words or something like, how could you have found them guilty or something like that? And the deputy told me, you're not allowed to speak with them. You know, they don't want to talk to you or something like that. Stay away, right? And I kept walking into their cars. This is June of 2006. 
So Jeff didn't get sentenced until October of that year. And in between that, we had a motion for a new trial that took place in August. The judge in the case decided, after hearing from the deputy uh, that day, that she was going to file a grievance with the Florida Bar against me, saying that I improperly tried to talk to jurors. If we know now is really ironic, given what we know happened six months before, right, with her being there. So, interestingly, the judge didn't send the grievance to the bar in June when it happened, or in July, or August, or September, or October when the sentencing happened. She didn't send it to the bar until after the sentencing. Why? Because if it had happened before the sentencing, I would have had grounds to file a motion to recuse the judge, and she wouldn't have been able to sentence him to life in prison, so we would never see the light of day again, and that's the plan. Right? So as soon as the trial is over, which, like John said, I've never done a murder trial before. I only had 10 days to prepare. But I want to correct one thing very clearly on the record. Jeff misspoke when he said that he thinks I didn't read the discovery or prepare for the case. That's not true. I did talk to witnesses, for example. I talked to more witnesses than the public defender did. Jennifer Orr testified because I opened up the discovery and I read a police report and I said, this girl says she saw him Saturday night at 5.30 or something. Right. There's her phone number. I wonder if she still lives there. I called her up. This is four years after the murder. Did anybody ever talk to you? No. You know, I went to her trailer. She still lived in the trailer park where the murder had happened. I went and talked to her about it. She testified. You know, all this stuff. So anyway, but obviously 10 days is not enough for the time to prepare for a murder trial. I prepared as much as I could during that time, but obviously it was not enough. It turned out to end up actually be 17 days because there was another mistrial declared um, on June 20th. Um, so then we started, it must have been the 26th, right? The 26th through the 30th was when the trial was. Um, as soon as the trial was over, I thought this was a complete mistake. This is a nightmare. This, you know, realized the entirety of what it was all about. And I hoped that eventually Jeff might get a hearing. In a, there's something, what they, what they, one reason why sometimes a person might be granted a new trial in a case is if he can prove that his, he received from his lawyer what's called ineffective assistance of counsel. You can't file that as your first appeal. You have to go through this other sort of formality first, like the first appeal to the Fifth District Court of Appeals, which of course is denied. Then you can file this. It's called a motion. It's a 3850 motion. So, so at the time after the trial, I think to myself, would it help if I told Jeff my personal part of the story and what motivated me to take over his trial, etc.? Yeah. I did some legal research at the time, and I came to the conclusion that no, it wouldn't help, and I've been proven right in the end, because the bottom line is the court doesn't care what a lawyer's mental state is, okay? What they care about is on the written transcript, okay? When you're in a courtroom, every word is taken down, and when a case is appealed, you get a written transcript that goes up to the appellate court. Now, I could have been tripping on acid. It wouldn't matter as long as I said all the right things that they were written down, okay? Now, what does it mean to say the right things or not, and what does it mean to provide ineffective assistance of counsel? As you can imagine, 
the bar is very, very low. Literally, the United States Supreme Court has said and continues to hold that an attorney can literally fall asleep at the defense table and sleep through part of a trial, and that does not constitute ineffective assistance to counsel. I'm not joking. This is 100% the truth. Okay? So to imagine what kind of evidence you would have to have to get to ineffective assistance of counsel, it's very, very difficult, okay, in general. In particular, in this case, it's been ridiculous because he couldn't even get a hearing. So at the time, okay, let's go back. So 2006, I do this research on my own, and I decide it's not going to matter if I tell people I was manic and that's why I think I was ineffective. What only is going to matter is what's on the page. So when he does file the ineffective assistance of counsel motion, and he does get a hearing, as I hope he can, because you don't even necessarily get a hearing. You file a motion, and a judge has to read it and decide whether there's enough evidence in the written motion to decide whether you even get what's called an evidentiary hearing. I've heard so many cases that have gotten hearings on so little evidence, you'll never believe that Jeff has never gotten a hearing in all these years. So, but I assumed that eventually or hoped that he would get a hearing. When there's a hearing on the case of ineffective assistance of counsel, the trial attorney is called as a witness. And most attorneys in that situation defend their performance and say, no, I was not ineffective. I planned to do the opposite. Um, And I, I believe that my representation was flawed because of the reasons I explained, and therefore my judgment was compromised. You know, the appellate court has, and you know, this has been affirmed now all the way up to the 11th Circuit in the federal court in Atlanta. They all read the transcript and say, Laura did a great job. She did a fine job. You know, and she, and the, the bottom line is, and this is why I, I hate trials, but anybody who was there at the trial, including Jeff's daughter, Jamie, and anybody who's heard the evidence since and watched it, you can see, and which all the appellate courts have shown in their decisions, I I was able to show that every single one of the state's witnesses was lying. Right. Right? And then they didn't have any straight answer about anything, about where they were or any of the things, right? But the jury didn't care. They didn't care at all. Now, you know, I can have theories about why or why not, and whether my behavior contributed to that in whatever way or not, but there's no way. And, you know, people, innocent people are convicted. And, you know, I think, well, on top of that, obviously, so after the trial, there were, you know, I, for a long time, felt that I was very largely responsible for his conviction and felt a lot of guilt about it, you know? But there's a long line of people whose fingerprints are on this who are much more guilty than I am, you know? And I've never done anything but try to help Jeff. I've done everything from uh, spending a lot of money to hire uh, a, um, an appellate lawyer for him and sending him money in the commissary for years and years and years. Um, and I've always been on his side, and I always will be. But what I think needs to happen in this case, because Jeff, Jeff doesn't need money for another lawyer necessarily, expensive this or what he needs is a private investigator, potentially. He needs new evidence. That's what's needed, because the, the one of the things that the courts loves to do is try to say this evidence for that is too old, or your argument is too old, 
but or you know there's a lot of um, deadlines. If you don't file this within a year or two years after you're convicted, they'll just throw out. You know, you won't even get a hearing. The one thing that there's never a deadline on is new evidence, right? It doesn't matter if you're convicted and it's 20 years later or 30 years later, and there's new evidence that's compelling enough potentially to get a new trial. There's no deadline on that. You can file a motion, and that's what he means. That's what I mean. I'm going to stop you here and ask Jamie to come back up. I'm sure that, that we're, we are now answering questions that people in the audience probably have. I do want to add, though, while James is coming up, that um, um, Jeff um, was able to get an appellate attorney working on his case um, that you know Jamie's mother-in-law, um, I, I believe, helped her with. Um, and um, unfortunately, he is no longer practicing. He was uh, caught with um, you know drugs and like drug paraphernalia and. Um, uh, stuff. So yeah, we talk about you know bad luck. I mean, don't ever you know when her dad comes out of prison, don't ever get on, an, on like an airplane with him or anything. Um, so, um, so perfect. But uh, okay, if there's anyone has questions, if you can make your way over here to if we can get a light this way, Matt. Over here, come on. I'm sure you guys have questions about the podcast or about uh, or of Jamie and Laura. For myself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, first of all, thank you all for your time this evening. It's a wonderful podcast. It's very thank you. following it. Uh, speaking to Jeff's case, you, you started to speak to it, but barring any new evidence, has he exhausted the appeal process? Are there appeals left to him if there is no new evidence found, or is he at the point now where new evidence needs to be found for anything else to happen? I think the answer is, I, I can't say 100%, but, it's, but I, it's, I think it's pretty close to that. Yeah. yeah, I actually spoke to an attorney on Friday about, you know, like Brandy Hall's case. I was just, you know, mentioning to him, you know, like Jeff's case, and he looked him up. And, um, you know, his theory is that you can always sort of appeal an appeal of an appeal of an appeal. There's always another way around it. But yeah, he's pretty close to being, uh, to being yeah. Thank you. So I appreciate what you do. So really disturbing is the fact that nobody really cares about the truth. And I know you harped on that with Bill Archer. Now we seem to have a governor that has a brain now. And we have a new state attorney. Is there anything that people can do to, I know you, uh, before the Camp Bondi was on a show with Geraldo Rivera, he said she was going to do certain things, but that never occurred. I'm absolutely waiting, yeah. yeah. And then also, I know that with this Boston Green, uh, they entitled still, that was, I think, on 2020 or Dateline or something. And with these, all this work that you've done, have you approached any of the networks with something like your story. Well, I, I haven't. I'm actually friends with Aaron Moriarty of like 48 hours, and we talk a lot about Crosby Green. Um, you know, I mean, some people have told me that what I should do next is encourage people to contact Ron DeSantis because, uh, as you said, he does seem to have a brain on his, uh, you know, in his head. And, and you know, a lot of people, I think, in the past have seen like these issues as left wing or right wing issues, you know. Um, but I think it's just un-American to keep somebody in prison um, 
wrongfully. And if a police officer lies on the stand, to me, if you think he's the right guy, you don't need to lie on the stand. You know, if you have like, witnesses who lie on the stand, I think that should be automatic grounds for some sort of relief. No, actually, I'm really glad you brought that up because another thought of, or line of potential action is if you can't get any, you know, relief through the courts, then potentially there can always be a relief through the governor's office. A governor can can pardon someone or or give them the clemency. Yeah, if, you know, even if he wasn't 100% declared innocent by the governor, he just wanted to let him out because he thought there was enough question or whatever legal thing they want to call it. But the governor's office can do that in addition to the courts. So if we can't get anywhere in the courts, we'll take whatever we can get, you know? I've been emailing Rome DeSantis and my husband calls every week, so. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, look. I mean, this was the kind of case I would go into Mara's office every morning and we would talk about what we had found, what I found. And we kept saying, well, there has to be something that we're missing. Because why did they focus on Jeff? You know, why, what, what, what is there? And we never found it because there isn't anything. So it's just, yeah, it's my well, I mean, I'm somebody like Bill Archer. I actually grew up with the guy in high But I think that's the truth. Don't these people actually care? No, they don't. They really don't. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know, um, I've been unhappy with my with um, with you know Mr. Archer's response to me on the other seasons that I've you know I've done, um, like with Gary Bennett. And, you know, if you don't know, he was put away by the um, a fraudulent you know dog handler, who every other case has been proven that you know it was, it was fraud, and um, he you know he won't even look at the cases he won't. Even look at. So it's just yeah, it's just funny. If you could use the microphone, sir, because we're recording this. In the end of your last season, you said this season took an emotional toll on you. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. And more importantly, um, where are we with social justice in Ramari County? Um, a lot of your cases are old, um, but I don't really feel like it's getting any better. That's a good question. I don't know if it is getting better or not. Um, I let you believe it is. Um, um, yeah, I mean, some of these newer cases really you know, cry out for uh, a, a voice as well. Uh, emotional tone, you'll have to ask my wife about my Smirnoff you know, vodka bill and my Tito's vodka bill because uh, it's like every night I have to get tanked up. No, I mean, like, seriously, uh, I wish I was now. Uh, uh, all, I mean, all kidding aside, you know, you get heavily invested in these cases. And, um, you know, I always try to go in with an open, uh, you know, uh, mind. I don't. You know, I walk in thinking, I don't know if Jeff is innocent or not, but I do know that he had some problems with his trial. And if the trial was not good, then innocent or not, he deserves a, a, a fair trial. But as I see everything in this case, it's just, you know, it just wears you down. I mean, when you, you know, um, when you hear an officer lie on the stand, I'm like, wait a second, he just said this, and I, I go back and I hear the take to what he had previously said, you know, to, to, just to see whether I heard it wrong or not, and no. And then I see a transcript from the other trial, and he said it there as well, so he's lying on the witness stand. And then I hear these people just lying and making up. So look, just one quick example. Two days after they were, um, sorry, 
One day after the body was found, the BDB and the cops from Aurora were up in Alabama questioning them. They all said that on the Friday that they left town, the victim in this, in this case went to Rita's apartment and threatened to kill her dog, right? Four years later, um, at trial, suddenly it was Jeff. It was, it was, it was, it, it, you know, it was, it, all of a sudden it just became Jeff who was there, you know, making threats to people that he, like, barely knew that he had no stake in, you know, in them or not. He didn't even have a car, so he would, he would have had to, you know, either hitch a ride over the causeway or, or whatever to get to the, it just didn't make sense. And so, yeah, it just, it wears you down. Um, I'll be happy um, when this night is over. And I can go with my uh, with our now retired executive editor to, to the Mets game on, on Friday and just, you know, chill. <laughs> but yeah, thank you. Anybody else? Sorry, Tommy, I'm going to make you walk over here, buddy. So I just had a question of curiosity here. Uh, So um, Jamie's trying to raise money for Anna Turner, so she has a like, GoFundMe page. How can they find it, Jamie? Um, it's a fundraiser. It's called Help Wrongfully Convicted uh, Jeffrey Abernowski. And you can go to his lawyer fees or even a private investigator. I mean, that sounds like a great route to go. Just anything to help them. And so how can they find it like, on like, Facebook? Yeah, or? it's um, called Fundraiser, I think. Okay, but fundraiser. it's on Facebook, Jamie LeBlanc. You can find it on IP. Thank you. I'm just, just thinking out loud, just some of the stuff that we've been talking about. I, the only juror that we've spoken to or heard from was the one juror from the 2005 trials who happened to contact me. And he has since signed that sworn affidavit that showed that the prosecutor acted improperly, even by his own words. Right? He said that would have been completely improper, and I never would have done it. But we know that jurors swore under oath that he did do it. Nobody's ever talked to the other jurors from that trial or to the jurors from my trial. I'm not allowed to talk to them, but other people can. And maybe if there were more evidence of the prosecutorial misconduct, maybe the, the governor would be interested in that. I don't, I don't know. but. It seems like there's got to be more that can be found if this one juror told us this much. Other people have to know more things, even if it's just about evidence of the case itself, evidence of prosecutorial misconduct, 
and evidence of, of police misconduct right. exists. All right, folks, if there are no more questions, um, I really want to thank you so much for you know, coming on out here. And again, I just want to stress, if you like Monroe Space Coast, if you like events like this and stuff, seriously, for the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can get a like digital subscription to FAR today. All the articles, all the updates, just go to floridatecom slash subscribe. And you tell them that JT sent you. <laughs> you can tell them Thank you. That's all for now. Remember, if you enjoy investigative journalism like this, please help support us by subscribing to Florida Today by going to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And follow the podcast at 321Murder. For more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. Com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.